Hello and welcome to the Hemosphere podcast. My name is Stephen Hibbs. I'm a haematologist and clinical research fellow based at Queen Mary University of London, and I'm one of the scientific editors for Hemosphere. So in our last episode, we were talking with Shirley and Mike, who are the two leading authors on a recent um, piece on poems, helping to address some of the complexities of this rare and important subject. And it turned out that we had a lot more to talk about than um, I'd first uh, reckoned on. And so we've broken this into a part one and a part two. Um, please do feel free to check out part one first if, if you'd like to, or otherwise you're um, very welcome to join us here. And this is the second part, and I'm glad to welcome Shirley and Mike back again. Welcome to the podcast of Hemisphere, the official journal of the European Hematology Association. Hemisphere's podcast presents insightful, expert discussions about recent hematology publications. We hope you enjoy. How do you go about trying to explain what poems is in terms that could be understandable to someone who might not have any kind of medical or scientific training? Um, yeah, what, what, what does that conversation sound like? Um, Shirley, perhaps if I start with you on this one. Yeah, you're absolutely right. There is has been a long history quite often and patients are feeling somewhat battered and bruised and they are really not, many of them are not well, they're not functional um, and they feel a bit let down by a series of doctors. Um, and um, this is a combination of things. One, we have to be somewhat diplomatic and explain the fact that, you know, early on, it's often very difficult to, to join the pieces um, uh, because of the rarity. Of course, the more you talk about it being rare, the more patients feel very flustered because they think, well, I'm all alone and what's going to happen? So we we do have, we've learned the words to explain the disease over the years. Um, what I'm, I, as a hematologist, I'm at pains to, because most patients pick up on the fact that poems is on a similar spectrum to myeloma. And when they read about myeloma, they, they freak out, actually, because it's obviously a quite an aggressive malignant disease. And I'm, so I'm at pains to say early on that I believe poems is almost bordering on a non-cancer, actually. I, I, I really don't think of it as a cancer because it, it, it behaves, it's an immunological disorder, which is, is driven by a clone, but there is the spectrum from the MGUS, as we call it, to something that's much more aggressive. And it sort of almost goes off on its own path um, and it doesn't behave like a cancer. So, for example, the bone lesions are not painful. Uh, there is a whole range of inflammatory things going on. So I'm at pains to say to them that if the sort of survival of people with poems is, in my view, as long as you uh, get to grips with the cardiorespiratory compromise, actually is pretty close to normal. That's been my experience. Mm -hmm. Um, so that is why we want to diagnose it early and get people well. In terms of neuropathy, of course, you know, that is another story and that takes time, but it, that doesn't really limit their lifespan. So I, I'm, I think I try and contain the negativity by saying, look, this is something that can improve and it does improve. We give examples of patients who've been literally fully dependent on their families to gradually becoming independent and actually becoming self-caring. We give examples of people who've been in a wheelchair, who've gone from to sticks to walking. And we've got some videos of people who've suddenly, you know, suddenly sort of shown us running and then climbing walls and things like that. So 
I'm quite keen on giving the good news stories early on to give them hope because in my opinion once you treat the disease it's it's all it's an upward trajectory of improvement it takes time and i think to give them to help sustain them to through that period of what two three years of, of improvement if they can hang on psychologically to this thing that will improve mm -hmm. then it gives them the wherewithal to um actually focus on their rehabilitation get through the therapies so that that tends to be my message it's like positive and i i genuinely have come to believe that because that's what i've observed and witnessed like is there anything else you say to patients at that kind of first um first or second meeting kind of when, when you're going through what's likely to happen next yeah and i'm very uh i mean obviously shelly and i often deliver those messages together in a sort of rather collaborative way like we're doing now um i i think one of the things is helping people uh recognize that we have recognized this and we've been here before they feel much more comfortable when they can uh see that they're in a service where people see what they've got and they can understand it so that's that that's quite important um uh, the, the the neurological disability of course is the bit that they come to me with um uh and uh i'm at pains to sort of explain to them that the neurological disability um, might take two years to even start getting better uh, and that even then it might carry on getting better for two or three or four years after that uh, and getting better is slow but people do get better as Shirley said and so we will often paint those pictures or introduce them to other patients or show them videos or what have you of people who have got better which clearly makes them feel much better. The other advantages of having the clinic that we run together uh, uh, is that you know we might see uh, 20 or 25 patients in the clinic uh, and they have the opportunity to talk to one another so we're at pains to either introduce them to the Facebook group uh, uh, or, or to um, other patients in the clinic who are happy to speak to them uh, and then they think they've suddenly realized they're not alone and it's not as rare as um, or it is it is rare but there are there are other people who are coming to the same place for the same thing uh, and that can be extremely reassuring to patients from the psychological point of view mm. uh, and then of course the other thing that we have is a very competent uh, small group of clinical nurse specialists who also can apply a slightly more independent uh, uh, view for the patients um, you know they're they're not nurses are always far less intimidating than the doctor telling you it'll be all right um uh, and actually we really value our nurses as as a, as a a part of our team um to to really help out and of course there are the psychologists that we share with the rest of the hematology unit who can can really help in the difficult um uh, times but uh, i think helping patients feel warm and understood and uh, explained and by giving, giving them a path of what's going to happen and, and really uh, perhaps dispelling some of uh, the uh, uh, um, more difficult sort of ideas of how long it's going to get better. Um, we I often use the phrase of there is no Amazon Prime in poems. Um, nothing's going to get better quickly here, um, but it does get better. So it's just a matter of pointing the positives out. Great. And a shout out, if I may, to actually the um, the rehab team and, and the orthotists at Queen Square, which I mean, I've learned a lot about orthotics hearing Mike describe them to patients. And 
you know, we are lucky that he can make direct referrals and they know what they're doing. And actually simple, you know, I say simple, there's a lot of technology there, but, you know, ankle foot orthoses um, can make a huge difference to foot drop patients and also the institution of rehab at in a timely fashion. You know, when there's been a bit of connection from nerves to muscles and then you can begin to recruit your whatever your function you've got and, and move forward. I think that is something that we try and trigger for patients uh, because function functionally that's a huge plus for them yes. i think where there's a slight problem nationally is that there's not so much widespread provision of, of physio it's very it's sorely lacking actually and and that's a shame because most of these patients are very many are young they they were working and they really want to function and it would be extremely important if they could get the help to function because then they could get back into society, back get back to their family lives. Uh, and so this is something we try and nudge starting in our centre, but then kind of sending them back to their locals for, for similar things. One kind of thing that's come up recurrently in this conversation, that's I think really unique actually about poems is just how shared the ownership is of patients between um, you as a haematologist and a neurologist. And I don't, I can't think of another condition that I, in any clinics I've worked in, it might happen in the amyloid centre, I, I haven't worked there, but, but I can't think of anything else in haematology where there's this kind of level of, of um, yeah, actually sharing sharing a clinic in, in this way to, to look after um, a particular disease area. I'd be interested to know your reflections on what, um, what that's been like, both in terms of some of the benefits of that, some of the challenges, and I guess now you're very used to, to this partnership, but um, if there was a centre as well that was wanting to set something like this up, what what, what some of the tensions potentially between the way that neurologists see the world and haematologists see the world, and yeah, how how you get something like this going? So maybe Mike, I'll start with you on this one. Uh, so it, it it was it was very interesting, you know, in that journey as a neurologist, seeing actually how frequently haematology uh, is within neurology, uh, and not always, but quite often. The two are linked and that's what really set up the clinic and where it's gone beyond poems and is non-hodgkin's lymphomas and and waldenstrom's other 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 sort of diseases so uh there are of course other collaborative clinics so uh, certainly not wanting to uh, offend uh, any other specialties and you know i have colleagues who work certainly with rheumatologists particularly in the vasculitis and in uh, connective tissue diseases and other things with neurology but actually in terms of other specialties uh, you know, it's infrequent that neurologists have clinics with respiratory uh, physicians or cardiologists or dermatologists because the haematology is really influential. And so uh, um, the, 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 it is a real interaction. There are other haematology neurology clinics now around the UK, a few. I think they've um, hopefully slightly followed our model um, uh, or made their own models out of our model, you know, whatever works. Um I, I think the, the the process works, and it probably would work with anybody. I hope uh, uh, it works on an understanding and a, uh, that's aimed at the patients. Uh, we're we're a triangle, uh, me and Shirley and our patients, uh, and you know everything is aimed at them. We're trying to do the best for them, and recognizing that um, if I see them and I make a decision and then Shirley sees them and then makes a decision, and then we have to talk to each other independently, and then we have to get the patient back to communicate, whereas actually it's much easier if we all sit in the same room and uh, we have a collaborative thought about things with the patient 
the patient is then concordant with our decisions. They understand why we've made them, and then we can proceed forwards. Um, it's much more efficient, uh, uh, and it's much better in the end for patient management. It, it really does work rather well. And of course, it all works on the fact that, um, uh, you know, Shelley and I have become extremely good friends as part of the whole process. Uh, uh, and, you know, uh, I think what COVID taught me was that um, a lot of my colleagues at work were actually my friends, because when I wasn't seeing them during COVID so much, then you miss them. Uh, and um, so, uh, you know, it was obvious from, you know, how Shelley and I get on that we're we're, we're good friends as well as colleagues. Uh, and I think if you can find a good friend um, either way uh, and you can see the purpose of what you're doing, um, then it all pretty much works really. So any thoughts on that at all, Shirley? I think one has to want to collaborate for the patient's sake, to be honest. And I think both Mike and I genuinely feel that. Um, we also have other colleagues at UCLH who've very been very keen to join. So Professor Stephanie Baldiveg in endocrinology, we had meetings years ago with her and she enabled um, one of her senior clinical fellows. She, she would have loved to join herself, but unfortunately the clinic clashed with one of her regular clinics. Um, so we've had the input of a senior endocrine fellow throughout the years and they themselves have done research into the, the endocrinopathy of poems, but they're also vital in the clinical follow up and advice of these patients because I'm terrible at endocrinology. And the fact is endocrinopathy produces a lot of morbidity and uh, whether it's hypogonadism, hypodrenalism, you know, people who have premature um, yeah, menopause and stuff like that. I mean, that all adds up to the health of the patient and what they feel. So if someone's hypogonadic, they are tired. Uh, there's erectile dysfunction, there's infertility, there's and one mustn't forget those things because it really, you know, in terms of, for example, bone health, if you ignore that, you know, that's bad news for the patient. These are young patients. Um, they've got a long life ahead of them. So we mustn't leave these sort of stones unturned. So that's been another great uh, help to our service. Likewise, we have an andrology clinic, which, again, is really helpful for the management of, of the um, erectile dysfunction side of things. So I think before anything, it has to be this this feeling of collaboration that has to come forward uh, with the patient at the center of everything. And um, that then you then find people who are interested. And I think there are very few people who are not interested in poems once they get to know it, because it is it really is fascinating. And when we go and speak to people elsewhere and things, they are equally fascinated. I think, you know, whenever we get, you know, people contacting us they are literally, they find it very interesting. And and I think it's just, it, it's come out of that. So I, I tend to think, uh, and people have asked how to recapitulate the service and we're always happy to lend our, whatever experience we've had to, to try and build something up locally as well. What I would say is that, um, I guess my experience of neurology is that, a bit like general hematologists, there are a lot of general neurologists. They, I think they're correct me if I'm wrong, Mike, but they are the kind of core of neurology in the UK. Most are generalists. They see a lot of referrals in district generals from GPs who may refer people with small symptoms, which probably fill up a neurologist clinic and they, they may get a bit like, oh, you know, it's, it's probably just, you know, so it's a crowded clinic for them. 
and to then set themselves time to think about peripheral nerves. Um, my experience is that there are not there are relatively few peripheral nerve specialists in urology, and I'm very lucky that Mike is is one of them, and that when I work with because that is the nuancing of peripheral nerve disease. I've discovered is is actually is a real craft, and mm. it's down to the consistent, systematic examination. And I think that is something that is really worth putting across. Uh, and 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 so I'm kind of commenting on the neurology side, but it's what I've observed. Uh, yeah. I think um, hematology is a bit more, you know, numbers and and sort of, but it's also spotting other features. So. I just think it's us. We're trying to get a message across, and that's certainly this, the paper we published. And we have published in neurology journals as well to try and highlight neurophysiological features and VEGFs and various things. We're just keen to get the message across as much as we can because it, it, it tickles the imagination. It plants a seed, and then people go off and think, "Oh, maybe maybe this is could be poems or whatever." It's. I think the key message is, um, you know that. It's so responsive to treatment. And I think as hematologists, we do see people respond a lot to the treatments we give, not necessarily always successful. But I think a lot of neurologists don't have that uh, benefit in many diseases. Um, Again, I'm sure things have moved on, but I think it is super rewarding. And if we're looking at professional satisfaction as well as patient reward, I think, you know, that is the way to, to kind of sell it to colleagues. You know, that if you make this diagnosis, you feel like a winner and um, you can see patients improving, which is which is brilliant, really. So final question for you both then. Um, this is a rare condition and and probably for that reason, as well as some others, there are a lot of uncertainties that remain um, about all, all parts of poems, um, both in terms of its underlying pathophysiology, but also its treatment and um, follow up. And so if I could give you both um, an infinite pool of money and access to the data of every poems patient in the world, um, what would be the one research study that um, you'd each like to do that would address what you feel is the kind of most important unanswered question? Um, So maybe, um, Shirley, do you want to start on this one? First of all, I think from a general looking after the patient's point of view, we need a system which enables quick diagnosis. So we need speed with investigations. We need uh, a regular education uh, because, you know, doctors, they come and go, <laughs> you know, people get older and they retire. So we need to capture doctors in training to make sure the message is hammered home on a regular basis across specialties. Okay. So we need some sort of almost like a, an, an academy of some sort, because what you said, the, the sky is the limit. So I'm going for a poems academy, <laughs> <laughs> which you know these days one can deliver like this digitally you don't have to have people coming in you can have a poems podcast where people can pop in and listen to cases secondly we need quick diagnostics um, we need more availability of diagnostics a lot of people do have to send VEGF uh, to Queen Square for example and, and, and the neuroimmunology lab that actually Mike heads up you know it does a great job and it re- responds to patients we have a little sort of PS, if your VEGF is high, please feel free to get in touch with the poem service and discuss the patient. Uh, On the hematological side, I think there's a great, I have to say, another colleague that's joined our service is Dr. Jonathan Siv, the 
because I've become a bit more distant from day-to-day myeloma therapy, we have, in, he's a myeloma specialist at UCLH. Um, he has actually runs our POEMS treatment clinic because there are so many therapies in myeloma, which we can and are already applying to POEMS because they, they really can make a difference. Gone are the days where we used to make, make a diagnosis and transplant everyone. Well, we still do that, but they're now relapsing or they they need other treatments, you know, so it's much more nuanced. So having a clear understanding and availability to antimyeloma therapies, of which there's a huge number, would be fantastic so that we can give people treatment, the kind of treatment they need that matches their morbidity that they may already have, you know. Mm. And I guess the other thing is the genetics. You know, why do people... Why do some plasma cell disorders express themselves as poems? Why is it lambda restricted? What is the light chain usage? You know, what is the genetic profile of these patients in terms of in the bone marrow? And again, myeloma has, there's a lot of, you know, mileage in that, in, in, in those treatments, but in those fields. In poems, we have a small amount of clonal disease to work with. Yeah. So we need to make the best of that. And, and we would love to do that. That is something that I know my colleague, Jonathan Siv, is, is looking into. Mm. How do we get these marrows, even if there's a very low burden disease, whether it's next generation sequencing or other omics, you know, because this, I think, will unlock some information as to why the disease behaves in this way. Why is it neurotropic? Why is it inflammatory, et cetera? And it could unlock appropriate delivery of therapies for the right patients, because there are subgroups within poems. Some do better than others with different therapies. In terms of the neurology, I will hand over to Mike. Yeah. So, Mike, what's your number one unanswered question? Uh, so, yeah, in Shirley's Poems Institute, uh, I, I want to know what it is, what serum factor it is that damages the nerves. Um, but that's the major disability that patients have. Uh, it's uh, not direct invasion of that plasma cell clone. It is something that happens as a result of the toxicity that is in the serum um, that is produced by that plasma cell clone or what that plasma cell clone drives. And so my major uh, interest would be uh, how does that factor get into the nerves what is it doing to the nerves because for me that's the way that we uh, intervene in the major disability as early as possible um uh, one goes to the other end of the problem of course and back to what shirley said what is it about that very tiny plasma cell clone as it often is that is unique and individual that should drive poems rather than just being multiple myeloma or plasma cytoma and there is something extraordinary about those cells in those patients that, that uh, drives the non-clonal disease or maybe it's the non-clonal cells that are extraordinary that are driven by a small clone that's there anyway but there's something at that end of the pathogenesis as well that leads to um, uh, understanding why poems patients get poems and again opens the window to turning the disease off at an earlier stage so I, I'm very much um, in Shirley's Poems Institute um, uh, uh, looking at both ends of that pathogenesis uh, what drives it and what the toxicity is that results in the disability um, uh, we've got some way to it in 
these last few years, collecting a big enough group of patients. Uh, but we always need more patients and we definitely need uh, more money and support um, for any of you out there who are willing to give me some money. Thank you so much, both of you, for this great discussion today. It's been really useful and I want to just direct our listeners um, to that paper as well on the Hemisphere website that will tell you even more about useful hints and tips about both how to understand, how to diagnose and how to treat poems. So thank you both and thank you to all our listeners for joining in today. We'll be back with another episode soon. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Hemisphere podcast. All of Hemisphere's content is open access and can be found at www.hemispherejournal.com. We hope you will join us for future podcast episodes.